Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 45 of Canine's Talking Sense. I hope everybody really enjoyed the last episode, episode 44, with Dr. Mary Cable. A lot of uh, various topics discussed, from search and rescue to legal and records keeping and so forth. And this episode coming up will kind of continue with some of that as well. Before we get into the episode, I hope everybody is getting back out there, enjoying some training, going to seminars. There's been uh, it's a lot uh, more options now on the seminar front. I know Blue Line K9 is coming up. There's no HITS conference this year. I am actually going to be doing a digital or a virtual class for the CNCA conference coming up in another week or so. And I know on the nose work front in the sport world, there are a lot more trials. Trials are opening up, more people. So even though it's getting warmer, I hope everybody's getting out there, getting to work their dogs, having fun, staying safe, and all that kind of good stuff. Over here at Ford Canine, pretty much the same things most of you guys get to see on social media. We have our wonderful puppies that we are raising, and they are a lot of fun. We've got uh, right now four Springer Spaniels. I have Chip that I'm raising. Rip is being raised by one of our other trainers. And then we have Pixel, who will be trained to become a bed bug detection dog. And then we also have Banner, who will be selected at some point in the job that he will do as that uh, as he gets selected. So... I hope you guys are enjoying the puppy development process. I try to share the videos and the photos and discuss what we are doing and why we're doing what we're doing at these stages because I keep wanting to share the information to everybody that with proper selection and raising techniques, we can have some really good dogs available to us that we produced and that we did from zero raising the dog to be, have a job. So for me, that's just a fun process. I really, really enjoy raising these young dogs to get out there and go do something. But just the process alone is a lot of fun. So I get a lot of questions about this with uh, when are we doing classes or seminars on the development process of puppies, and we will be. So stay tuned for that. The cognition classes I do, uh, the seminars have an aspect of puppy, but we will also do here pretty soon puppy-specific cognition uh, tests. 
I'm trying to figure out possibly the best way to share this information, whether it needs to be like I do with the normal cognition classes in person, or will I be able to do some videos? I have a feeling I should be able to do some videos uh, on this. And if we do that, those, of course, will get posted on our uh, Ford K9 website. So there's that. The other fun project that we are doing is the... Uh, Electronic Mass Media Detection Dog. We are going to be doing a number of these dogs uh, for some police departments. That in itself is a new field that has been out for a little while, but we are really learning a whole lot more than we thought we knew before. We thought we had a chemical nailed down that was the right chemical to use. Turns out it actually probably wasn't. So uh, now the industry is shifting, and thanks to some uh, good research done in Holland, we have made some adjustments and have focused on other chemicals that are highly effective in the detection of all types of electronic media, going from the micro SD card to the SIM card to a cell phone to a tablet to a solid-state drive, to a computer itself. Really, really useful in an investigative aspect, so we are very excited to do that. And I've also been doing some, uh, right now, Zoom lectures uh, for agencies wanting to increase their investigation ability in the electronic media world because so much is being done now through electronic devices, whether it be transactions on Bitcoin from the sharing of images or things called NFTs. It is a whole new realm. And in law enforcement and security, we have to step up because we are already a little bit behind when it comes to addressing this threat and concern. This even includes terrorism, you know, terrorism aspects that are done through phones and and uh, media devices. So these dogs will play an important and integral role in uh, helping keeping us safe, keeping children safe, um, and so forth. So we have a lot of fun doing that. Upcoming classes and seminars here at Ford Canine, as usual, go to our website. I'll be traveling quite a bit coming up. I'll be gone to, uh, for two weeks up in Sacramento, working with the California Highway Patrol, traveling to Ohio coming up. You can go to the website. There are all the locations. So if you can't make it out to Vegas, hop on there, click on the event that you see if it's near you, and then click on or scroll once that little pop-up window comes up for that event, scroll in there. Usually there should be the email address and contact person who's hosting that event. So that way you can see if there's any availability to sign up either as an audit spot or a working spot. And last, I want to, uh, of course, I want to thank our sponsors for Canines Talking Sense, Michelle Mon and Jenna Gadbury from Psy Canine. Thank you guys for uh, being a great supporter of the show. Uh, if you guys don't know what the TAD or training aid delivery device is, go to SciK9.com. That's just S-C-I-K number nine.com. And you will get to see that great training tool. It is what it is. It's a training tool and uh, it's very useful. Uh, Precision Explosives, they are another great sponsor for the show. If you are looking for training aids and you don't have an ATF license or now even a DEA license, the guys or Todd over at Precision Explosives has the ability to provide you with real narcotic odor, real explosive odor, and real bed bug odor. 
you're not talking about a synthetic or a mimic, you will actually get to train on and purchase real odor from Precision Explosives. Go to their website, Precision Explosives. You can Google it. It's also listed in the show notes here. Go to their website. Some of these products aren't listed there yet because they are so new. So email them and they will get back to you on cost and availability of these products. And then, of course, my good friend Pat Nolan with the uh, Scent Wheel. And uh, his website is tacticaldirectionalcanine.com. Again, it's in the show notes here. Pat makes a great product. We sell it for him as well. So you can also go to the fordk9.com, go to the store, and you can purchase it that way as well as a simplified version. Really, really good product. Stainless steel. I love the portable scent wheel because being able to move around and setting up at different places, it's uh, it's a great tool to have. The uh, larger scent wheel with 12 arms is great for a training center. And on the scent wheel, I wanted to talk about training tools. I get labeled as a gadget or a toy guy uh, when it comes to detection dogs. And I'm good with that because what is viewed as a toy today ends up being a tool tomorrow. Look at smartphones. You know, years ago, people were like, just give me a phone with numbers on it. I just need my little flip phone, open it up. I just need numbers. I don't need to have it do all these crazy things. Now look at today. There isn't hardly anybody who doesn't have a smartphone and how much we need it. In the detection dog world, for me, I like having different contexts and and different stages require or I utilize different tools. So in the beginning, I use maybe the elbow pipes, the PVC elbow pipes. Maybe I use a metal or, or plastic material box type. Maybe I use... The, the the stands that hold the shaker cans in them. Then there's the wheel. Once I move into the phase where I know my dog knows the odor, well, then I go to the next phase of training where I want the dog to go down maybe a lineup or a wheel and let me know yes or no, does this particular arm of the wheel or the spot on the lineup contain the target odor it's trained to detect? And then operationally, operationally, I have you know, unlimited environments. I may have things within the environments. This is where a tad might come in handy. Maybe I want to put it in water. I don't want to lose or damage my training material. So I have a way to protect it. Uh, Maybe I want to reduce the amount of odor. So I have devices to use for that. People sometimes get very focused on that. If you use a particular tool, that must be the way you train all the way through. And I think that gets that's lost. As a trainer, I don't want to have just a hammer to use to build or fix things. I want my toolbox to have lots of tools in it. And have the more tools I have, you can call them gadgets or toys or whatever you want to call it, I want diversity and I want the ability to constantly change the context in which the odor is in. So this way... The consistent piece in all of these phases of training is the odor. It's not the container. And sometimes uh, the, the reverse happens. We like a type of containment, whether it be the wooden boxes or a scent wall. And those are great tools to utilize, but sometimes we might stay on it too long. And depending on a certain dog's cognitive ability, dogs may get very hyper-focused on the containment, and then the odor is a secondary aspect. 
So for me and the training that I do, I want to have the ability to constantly change the container or the context that the dog is sniffing to find the target odor. And I also want to be able to present uh, non-target odors in a similar or same fashion. So this way, I'm able to have the dog get as clear as possible as to what they are looking for, no matter what it is in, and to be able to adjust or change my odor thresholds, to change the volume of odor coming out or on something or moving or what have you. So... I want my toolbox to have the screwdriver, the socket set, the Allen wrench, the drill. I want my toolbox to be very diverse so that way I have the ability to work with all different types of dogs under all different types of circumstances to do one thing, which is to find the odor. So with that said, I hope everybody keeps engaging on the Canines Talking Sense uh, discussion group on Facebook. We have, uh, we do various posts on there. I end up doing a majority of them or I share articles, but I very much look forward to uh, other people posting questions or posting uh, a research article they found. Don't be shy, get on there, ask questions. There is almost uh, 1,500 or more people signed up on that group. So there's uh, lots of knowledge and lots of backgrounds and, and lots of opinions. So go check that out. Also tell, you know, you can contact me. I would love to hear from you guys, the listeners, uh, of some more names of guests that you guys would love to hear from. I've already got some great ones lined up. Uh, We have Paul Bunker coming on here soon. There's some other fun individuals which I'll keep uh, quiet for the time being. But I want to hear from you guys. Who do you want to hear from? Who are you interested in? So email me, info, I-N-F-O, at FordK9.com. And I will get back to that. Also, on that note, please like, subscribe, give your review on the different podcast formats that you guys listen to this podcast on because those reviews help us gain uh, popularity and gain more listeners and become easier to be found when people go searching for their podcasts. And I greatly appreciate all of you listeners. Uh, I appreciate a lot of the support you guys have given us, a lot of the feedback you've given me. So please keep that up. And I thank you guys very much. So this episode kind of continues with the legal background uh, in detection dogs. And I very much have wanted to have this guest on the show. And uh, we have a great long discussion on all kinds of topics. So with that said, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I wanted to, with this episode, continue with some of the legal aspects when it comes to canine detection. And the guest I have this time has picking up the mantle from a good friend of mine, Terry Fleck, and carried on the uh, informational resource when it comes to canine case law and legal proceedings and so forth. So I want to introduce Mike Kamisic. Mike, welcome to Canines Talking Sense. Well, Cameron, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here. So for those, and I thank you for taking the time to come on here, because I know you're busy and you still work as an active law enforcement officer and everything else. So with that said, give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and then how you came to, like I said, pick up the mantle from Terry. Yeah, so I'm a uh, 26-year veteran law enforcement officer. 
22 years at my uh, current agency, which sits in the uh, Chicago metropolitan area. I've been a canine handler for 17 years. Uh, I've worked multiple dogs. Um, my dogs have been trained in uh, dual purpose patrol narcotics and um, also uh, human remains detection. Mm-hmm. So I have, you know, quite an experience there. And um, I'm an instructor in just about every uh, aspect of law enforcement there is to be an instructor. My specialty is really on the use of force side. And I have done um, consulting uh, on state and federal court cases, both on uh, patrol dog criminal apprehension, as well as uh, narcotics detection. And, you know, I was a big fan of Terry. I took a lot of uh, Terry's classes and um, became friends with Terry over the years. And I studied under Terry and I studied under some pretty prominent uh, attorneys up in the Chicago metro area, uh, one being a, a real prominent search and seizure attorney and the other being a real prominent uh, use of force uh, attorney. And so um, when Terry was, for those who don't know, Terry was ill for quite a while. And he had reached out to me in October of 2018 and had asked if I would be interesting, interested in taking over his uh, website if he became unable to do it because of his illness or in case he died. Sure. And I said, you know, I would be more than happy to um, try to carry that torch and, and fill those big shoes. Of course, six months later, um, Terry unfortunately passed away in uh, March of uh, 2019. So uh as a matter of fact the uh webmaster that he was using at that particular time the day that he died terry um sent him an email saying reach out to mike because you know i've i've come to the end so that's all the way to his deathbed he was doing what he you know always did for the canine industry so oh yeah no uh, like you said those are some big shoes to fill and i'll say that you've definitely filled them well so far without a doubt well, I appreciate that. Um, I really, really, I do. I mean, that's why I do it. Is I'm huge into the education of our our officers and trying to look out for uh, their well being. And you know, first and foremost, I tell everybody at the beginning of uh, the seminars that I teach is that first and foremost, you have to go home at the end of the night. That's number one. And uh, number two, you have to uh, keep yourself out of jail. Mm-hmm. And number three, you have to keep yourself from being successfully sued. And so that's kind of my mantra in my seminars is that's my goal is to those three things. And, you know, so that's kind of where we're at. I bring a, a unique perspective to this if I'm not an attorney, um, which a lot of officers, you know, when they're going through these classes, when they have attorneys that teach them, they don't have that same connection that they do with, you know, a fellow police officer sure. and a fellow canine hammer who's been out you know, doing it. And quite frankly, as I'm sure you know, the attorneys are very, very unfamiliar with the dogs and mm-hmm. the law that actually surrounds, um, they, they're unfamiliar with the cases that undergird what it is that we do mm-hmm. and all that. So it's really about, not only do you have to educate the handlers, but you have to educate the prosecuting attorneys. You have to educate your defense attorney if you're <clears throat> sued at the, you know, at the civil level. And so that's kind of my goal is to get that education out there and keep our dogs in the um, held in the most highest esteem in our courts. Because if we start to lose that, then our court cases are going to suffer and everything that we do. Absolutely. And, and, 
you, know, you, you bring up a lot of the important points there, which is obviously we share a, a common goal, which is the educational aspect and sharing information. And, you know, I kind of laughed to myself too, as you're describing the, you know, the law enforcement officer's relation to an attorney and the attorney relation to the officer. There's typically the disconnect and, and misunderstandings at times. And then, of course, in the world I work frequently in, it's the scientific community and the dog handler and the same, very similar, very, the circumstances match up quite much the same. In that feeling of where we, you know, don't always understand each other, but we have a common goal, which is to, exactly. you know, uh, present information and do the best we can. So the, you know, there's obviously been a temperature and tone change within law enforcement, uh, both in the legal aspect, the civil aspect, as, uh, as well as support within agencies in the community at large and the direct impact that has had more so with obviously uh, the bite cases and patrol dog aspect where, you know, you and I will have this conversation today is going to be about how those same factors will create uh, a ripple effect into the detection dog aspect. Because if they distrust law enforcement and they distrust that handler who works that dog. There's going to be significant questions into reliability of that detection dog and how it was trained, certified, maintained, things of that nature. Speak a little bit about that and what you've seen when it comes to detection dogs uh, as, a, as a kind of like that ripple effect from the new tone we're in today. Yeah. I mean, Cameron, that's a really, really good point. And one of the things I think um, when handlers think that they're, you know, going to get sued, like you said, typically that's, you're going to see that come up at the patrol dog level, but we're, we're seeing already those cases, the civil liability bleeding into the detection dog cases. And I, I think handlers are wholly unprepared for that. So we've seen a couple cases. Um, there's one out of the 10th. There's a, uh, 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, there's another one out of the 7th Circuit Court of Appeals, and we're starting to see these more and more where handlers and officers are being sued for their unlawful searches on the detection dog side. And typically, when we look at the detection dog side, and that is typically we're going to be working around, or at least from your normal canine handler standpoint, in and around vehicles. And vehicles, typically, the number one challenge at the uh, in court is going to be the impermissible um, extension of the traffic stop. And the moment in time that uh, a court deems that the stop was unlawfully extended, then officers are subject to a, a civil civil lawsuit. So we're starting to see those. The Seventh Circuit has a case, it's Huff versus Reichert, that you start to see it was actually a handler that stopped the vehicle. And the district court uh, denied the officer summary judgment on qualified immunity grounds, and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals upheld that. And so we're starting to see that all bleed over into um, into the detection dog side. And the, your other point about the trusting of law enforcement, and now the second biggest challenge that is going to come up, at least in the criminal cases, is going to be this the reliability issue and especially when you're looking at handler queuing, that's probably the number one challenge that we're seeing at the uh, criminal level 
the impermissible traffic stop being the number one, I should say. And then second is, was the dog sufficiently reliable on the street? And was there a handler queuing issue? And that seems to be a significant challenge that's coming up in our, our court cases. And, you know, if law enforcement in general isn't, it has this lack of trust that directly calls into the handler's testimony as the expert in their dog in court, especially when it comes to reliability and handler queuing. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think one of the things that's mainly not helped, I would say, is the shows like Live PD that clearly show, and I use videos in my lectures uh, directly coming from the excerpts of uh, Live PD where, unfortunately, you see very, very poor judgment, I would say, if the like a better term. No, I agree. And and that will do nothing but cause more distrust from those watching that. And what I like to pose the question to many of the canine officers when I do my classes is, is if you saw that and that was your family's vehicle, how would you feel? Is is that acceptable? Is that type of deployment of the dog, reading of the dog, how that situation turned out? Is that acceptable if that was you and your family going through that? Let's say you're in a different country and this is what happened to you. You know, so, and of course, the astounding answer is absolutely not. That's not acceptable. And it's good to see that we have, you know, as an industry, yes, we want the higher standards. But sometimes, like you mentioned, the execution to get there is where a lot of great debate comes from. And like you brought up, the handler queuing is a significant question that comes to play. And then I get brought in because of the mm-hmm. cognition research I've done. And, you know, and those that have been through my cognition classes, one of the main lines I, in like slide two or three, is there is no other animal on the planet that has the ability to read human communication and intention better than a dog. So chimpanzees, bonobos, et cetera, things that are, genetically close related to us, do not have the ability to read our community of intention as good as a dog does. And that's where, like you brought up, does the bias of the officer exude to a level the dog is reading this and then acts in a certain way to elect a response. And, you know, one of the biggest things I always hammer on handlers is, it's not your job to convince the dog. It's the dog's job to convince you. And if your dog isn't convincing you there's something there through all the you know training and behaviors and things that you know, don't go with, well, you know, I assume or I guess or because, you know, we'll get into some other stuff further here in a few minutes, but it's everything's on video, you know, and perception of that video has an effect. Would you not say that? Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, we're in a different time than we were 20 years ago with body cams and dash cams. I mean, dash cams were around 20 years ago, but, you know, that didn't give you or give the court, I should say, this um, really close view of what is going on where the body cams, they do. And now we can see the different changes in behavior in the dog at a much closer level. And so if the handler is seeing or reading things and describing into a court of law that they saw this in their dog, this um, these behavior changes, and that body cam is not showing 
that per se, then we already have, you know, we're putting doubt already into the judge or jury, the trier of fact there uh, into their head that, you know, hey, we already have some doubt here as to what was going on. Yep. And what would you say, or what based on, because you study a lot of this stuff and you see the cases that come through, what are things that they're picking up on or what are they utilizing to create the argument of the handler queuing? Well, I will say this. If for anybody who, any handler out there who's not familiar with handler beliefs, effects, and um, detection dog outcomes by uh, Dr. Lisa Litt at all, they really should read that study because that really has become, in my opinion, the foundation for the handler queuing. And there's plenty of defense expert witnesses that are out there testifying. And listen, I, I'm doing expert witness testimony. I, you know, I get the fact as to why these people do it. There's there's significant amount of money in it, especially on the dark side. And you know, you have these expert witnesses that are out there bragging that they make two hundred thousand dollars a year testifying against you and me and our fellow dog handlers out there. Mm-hmm. People who are um, bragging, you know, they make $700 an hour to do this, but some of them are very good at what they do and they're very convincing. And the undergirding for their handler queuing, which many of them are, that's their argument, comes from the Dr. Lisa Litt study, which I know you're very, very familiar with. And yep. so I really encourage the detection side more so than the patrol side, really shouldn't be an issue for us. And the reason I say that is because we have for almost two decades now, a scientific community that has done great, great work in scientifically validating our dogs and the scent detection. And so it always boggles me when I and I go out and I teach seminars and I speak to handlers across the United States. They're not even familiar with swig dog or they're not familiar Mm. with the national institute of standards and technology and the uh, work that they do and these uh, you know these are scientifically validated best practice guidelines that that they have put out and it's real simple follow the guidelines be familiar with them follow them and you shouldn't have any issues in court now some of these people that have come in, these defense experts who have come in and they cite the Dr. Lisa Litt study, Handler Beliefs, Effects, Scent, Detection, Dog Outcomes, they also cite Swig Dog or they cite the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And they have a, in many circumstances, they have a gross misinterpretation of what those best practice guidelines are. So handlers have to be familiar with that they have to they have to do their research and be very familiar with the peer reviewed studies that are out there because if they haven't been challenged in court yet with them that is coming to a courtroom near them yes and you know handlers that are well educated who can cite the peer reviewed articles um and cite their counters and are familiar with them those are the ones that that um are very successful in court and i always Kind of, Cameron, what I try to do when I uh, teach handlers is kind of try to put it into context like this. There are many, most every cop out there has done, you know, made some arrest for 
driving under the influence of alcohol or operating while intoxicated, whatever their state statute is. And they've run these people through the field standardized standardized Mm -hmm. field sobriety tests. And then they get to court and the defense attorney comes into court with the NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration handbook on standardized field sobriety tests. They open that book up and they go line by line to ensure that you have complied with the standards set forth by NHTSA. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't, then they can show to a court that you did not conduct the standardized field sobriety tests, which are scientifically validated, and they cast that doubt. Well, that's what's happening in our courts today with our dogs. These these defense attorneys are coming in with the SWIG dog standard. They're going to come in with the National Institute of Standards and Technology standard, and they're going to go through these line by line to ensure that handlers are familiar with them and that they're complying with them because those are scientifically validated. And so that's why I try to tell handlers, you need to be familiar with this, know that it's out there, know what's in there, and do your best to, in fact, comply with the standards that are out there because they're there for a reason. Yeah. And well, I'm in a unique position. I'm actually sitting on the board now with ASB and in process with OSAC NIST to be on that one as well. And you hit the nail on the head with... Yeah, a lot of these things go out for public comment before they become finalized. They do. And so many handlers, trainers, et cetera, in our industry don't even bother to give it the time of day. But then when it becomes finalized and goes out there, people start throwing their arms up. Well, this is BS and why I don't need to do this. If they, you want your voice to be heard, then when these publications go out for review by the industry, please read and review. It, yep. The boards are made up of both practitioner, law enforcement, and the science academic world with the goal of, like you just said, creating the best practices for us to go forward that started with Swig Dog. And, you know, like you also said, it won't matter what organization you certify to. It won't matter. The legal system is going to go to what does NIST and ASB say, and they basically say the same thing. Both groups have obviously overlapping people in them. So, you know, one's governmental, one's non-governmental, but they're going to say basically the same things. And they're going to ask you, well, hey, this is what they say is best practices, yet we reviewed your records and everything else that's been submitted for the court purposes, and we don't see X, Y, or Z, whatever that is. Why is that? Yeah, and and then the handler's stuck trying to defend, or the trainer's stuck trying to defend why they don't follow the industry best practices. And I loved your example of the DUI aspect because you just, it's it, that we've already seen what they're going to do. It didn't exactly. matter. We've, it didn't the matter. The roadmap what, is sitting in front of us. Yes, exactly. So, you know, though your area in the canine community may not do this or do that, you will probably find yourself doing it before too long because it'll only take a court case in your district to redefine what you do. And we all understand and know law enforcement is reactive. You know, we only react once we get hit in the head with a two by four to, to change something. And <laughs> and once once that happens, then all of a sudden it becomes normal and we're all good with it. But when you we try to tell them ahead of time, hey, look, the, the train's coming down the tracks, we should change. They're like, oh, F you, that's never going to happen. You don't understand. All these, other, you really think that's going to change? Well, I, I can for sure tell you on the detection side of things, there is going to be in black and white, 
practices that are going to get pulled into the legal community and then asked of canine units, why are you or why are you not doing what's listed in these practices? It's exactly correct. So the um, and it's and it's you brought up. So the podcast that airs coming out this week, which will be just before yours, I I sit down and I interview Mary Cable, and she was obviously successful in Utah specifically. She brings up how you know she said we share the common goal of wanting the industry to be better. Her approach, you know, like she says, is the way that she goes. She also made it very clear that she testifies for cops. As much you know, as she has testified against law enforcement as well. Obviously, the cases against law enforcement have got the most publicity, and the overall, uh, without going too crazy, the podcast aspect of it that we talked about, there isn't much I don't disagree with with what she looks at from her point of view. You know, like, and you'll say the same thing. It's the record keeping, and when when there's significant gaps in the record keeping. We all know if you didn't write it, it didn't happen, you know, and when for her and as she says in there on the podcast, when she sees gross negligence in the either the record keeping or the training of the canine and which then she can obviously, you know, uh, through those things interpret that there is a deficiency in the reliability aspect potentially that's where she voices what she sees and what she um, has read or not read in, the, in some cases. To include, like we talked about, the Lisa Lit thing and certifications, you know, she goes heavily into double blind, but she even says on the podcast, double blind is testing for them, basically. You know, it's the review. Can they do this at a reliable level? She did, Like she said, she's not sign, trying to say it's the end all be all, but in court cases, when it's asked, she says, you know, there is relevance to having it. And there's, it's important to at least test your teams and where her and I will go, you know, debate is single versus double and the difference. And you probably know the study that I did with Nathan Hall and Mallory Deshant with, you know, single versus double and the data that we got, you know, and I, I make the joke constantly with, you know, like we do in the dog community. The only two things trainers agree upon is the third one <laughs> is, is screwed up. For us, it's also in the science community is the only two things scientists or researchers agree upon is the third scientist or researchers, you know, data is incorrect. So right. they will, you know, she, she, you know, for her found flaws in some of the studies that, you know, Nathan and myself did it with our research. But we came to the common conclusion that, you know, a well-rounded dog team will have included the training aspect as well as a testing aspect and the testing aspect has to needs to be documented and needs to show as much you know or or as little handler bias or handler information as possible and then the outcome is true and correct to what the test was looking for and and so to to that we are all in agreement like i said we may you know like i told her you know my approach is to educate within and her approach, you know, based on what she has done, so, you know, with various things she does within too, but what she's known for is obviously the cases in Utah and things like that. And 
part of what she brings up. I mean, a lot of the things I, I don't disagree with when I read it. It's just a lot of times, too, which in certain cases, uh, I think a judge's bias <laughs> sometimes comes through. And, oh, yeah. And that has a extra added effect on something that maybe she didn't necessarily intend to get magnified as much as it did. But that's what the judge goes on and boom, off it goes. Right. So – that brings us to that brings me to the question of let's go into so I'm trying to think of the best way to word this record keeping versus certification importance of either one and what at the end of the day holds a significant amount of weight in the eyes of the court. Um, that is a very good question. I think there are three parts actually to the reliability of a dog in court. If you look at them, there are your training records. There are your certification records, and then there is your field performance reliability. And unfortunately, there the trainers, you can typically, and you may agree or disagree, but typically when I look at something where there's an issue in a dog or a handler or both, the team, you can trace that back to the trainer. You can trace it back to the trainer, or you can trace it back to the supervision at the agency. And so... Most trainers and handlers have glommed onto one paragraph out of the Supreme Court's decision, Florida versus Harris, that says basically, I'm paraphrasing that if a bona fide organization has tested a dog in a controlled setting or the dog has recently and successfully completed a training program, a court subject to any conflicting evidence offered can presume that the dog. Um, alert provided was sufficiently reliable and therefore provides probable cause. And I think a, a lot of people have missed in there the very important notation by the court subject to any conflicting evidence offered. <laughs> and so a lot of handlers and trainers are under the belief that they do not need to keep their field performance records. And that couldn't be any further from the truth. Cause if you read Further on in the Supreme Court's analysis in Florida versus Harris, they do say that when the handler is on the stand, the defendant must have the opportunity to be able to question the handler about field performance. And then the court can weigh that evidence um, in light of the handler's testimony and in light of you know other evidence surrounding the case. So that's why I say that Field performance records are still part of that analysis. Now, they are probably less important than your training and certification records, but they still are a component in there. And so handlers still need to be tracking that and then turning that evidence, you know, turning that over for the defense so that they can uh, look at it. But I think most importantly, the two most important, and I would say equally important, is your training and certification records. So if you look at it, one of the things that I think we are lacking, unless you're certifying through a nationally recognized canine association, a lot of the private vendors, they have certification and they might have a test sheet and they might have a certificate that they sign off that says that you passed, but the question becomes, what are those written curriculum? What is the written standard? And do they have the written standard and are have those standards that they're certifying to 
uh, do they pass the scientific validation test? In other words, uh, if we look at the National Canine Associations, now, most of them, if you look through the standard pretty closely, they're in line fairly closely with Swig Dog and and ASB and NIST mm-hmm. for the most part. And these certifications for through these national associations, many of them, they've already been tested in the courts mm-hmm. and they've been shown to be bona fide organizations. Yeah. So, but these private vendors who may be out there certifying people and whatnot, my question to handlers that do that is, is make sure you get the written standard from from those evaluators so that you can document what those standards are in your, your certification logs. Absolutely. And the, the train, I mean, because the defense attorneys, then at least, you know, will have the opportunity. There is a standard right there and you can take a look at it. The problem that at least on the supervision side of things is many of the canine supervisors, they don't even know, they don't even know what the industry standard is. So how they're even conducting meaningful, evaluations on where they're sending their guys to get certified or who their evaluators are, they don't even know. They're just, oh, we're just going to use this guy because he's local or we're going to use this guy because he he runs a two-week class versus a six-week class. Or mm-hmm. And so we have these problems with the supervision side to begin with. And the training records, though, in my opinion, are just as weighty as your certification records, because this is where, if you look at the definition of maintenance training, and I always tell, I tell handlers all the time, I don't care if it's your policy or if it's the statutory law of the print in black and white, when there's a definition, you need to know what the definition of every little word is because attorneys will fight and fight and fight over the definition and the meaning of one word. Yes. So you need to know what those definitions are. And if you look at the definition of maintenance training, and I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have it sitting in front of me, but if you look at Swig Dog or you look at um, the ASB who recently put out their general Mm -hmm. uh, guidelines, they talk about maintenance training as being regular objective oriented training sufficient to maintain operational efficiency. Mm-hmm. That is very, very, in my opinion, that is very, very key. And it's also going to depend upon the area in which the dog team is deploying. So, and I bring this example up in my classes. So when we're talking about maintenance training, that is as close as I'm going to get to the definition of maintenance training out of out of those uh, organizations. So we look at operational efficiency, objective-orientated operational efficiency. So I always say, okay, so typically our canine handlers on the NARC side, what, where are you deploying or what object is it that you are being called routinely to sniff? Mm-hmm. And the I would say a vast majority, we can probably come to an agreement, is going to be vehicles. Mm -hmm. We're going to be the vast majority. So I always bring this for maintenance training purposes. If maintenance training is is operational efficiency, uh, uh, objective-orientated, then why, when I look at training reports, do I see that the majority of people are in a, you know, 
eight by eight room doing narcotics training, which I'm perfectly fine with because, you know, there's, I always put it this way. There's a difference between dog training and police dog training. And if I, being a firearms instructor, I put it to you, put, put it to the handlers this way. Firearms training is standing on the range, shooting at paper targets. You're, you're working fundamentals. You're working drawing, grip, trigger pull, sight alignment. That's dog training, right? We're, we're doing, we're working the fundamentals with the dog. Police dog training would be your simunitions training where you're put into scenarios and you have to act appropriately within those scenarios with force on force. And that's, in my opinion, that's police dog training. That's our uh, objective goal-orientated training. So I say, so when I look into somebody's training report, if, if let's just say you're 80% of your street deployments are on vehicles, then a vast majority of your narcotics training, in my opinion, mm-hmm. at least for maintenance training, should be on vehicles because mm-hmm. that's what you're you're operating. That doesn't mean that we don't ignore, we don't go back and we work on fundamentals such as odor rack or you know any others. This doesn't mean that we ignore everything else. But if that's if that's what maintenance training is, put that into the context. That's probably what your training report should be seeing. The other problem that we have a real problem with, in my opinion, on training reports is, is that there's another component in the standard, and that is that maintenance training will aid in correcting identified deficiencies or operational mm-hmm. concerns. And every court in this country, as you know, Cameron, every court in this country has acknowledged the fact that a dog is a dog and that it's not 100%. Yep. That there will be error rates, that that, and that's okay. And I think handlers get caught up. They don't want to put in their training reports that they made a mistake or their dog made a mistake. And and I try to tell people it's okay. One of the the first thing that an expert witness is going to do is they're going to look at your training records, and they're going to check them. Many of them are going to check them under the standard whether it be swig dog or obviously with the new one that just came out under those standards. And the next thing they're going to do is they're going to look at them for whether or not you've identified any deficiencies or operational concerns. It's not, the problem isn't documenting there, putting them in there. The problem becomes if you put them in there and you don't show that you took any steps to correct them, that's when it would become an issue. But we always go in there if we see a deficiency. We always correct that deficiency. And handlers need to be aware that's okay to do that and to document that in their training records. Because the one thing that I can show, if you're 100% in your training records, you're a liar. <laughs> and you just hit pretty much almost exactly what Dr. Cable was saying. And she said when she looks at the records, if there's basically – no failures, nothing about corrective action, any of these crucial pieces that aren't there, she knows you're full of shit, And which automatically as a person reviewing legal documents or to be preparing for legal cases for dog teams, she's, that's a huge red flag. Yep. And she said, you know, so then that causes her to dig further. And the aspect that she wanted to highlight to handlers is the same thing that me and you just are agreeing upon too is 
document these things. Document, you should push your training to find, in some cases, where the failure might exist. Push yourself mm-hmm. to see very, you know, what happens is everybody gets into a routine, a training routine, like you mentioned, and it's like shooting the paper targets. It's just very easy. It's go do this. Let's go do that. And, you know, when do we go do dinner? They're not putting things out for hours ahead of time. They're they're never searching. It's the same, let's say, 12 cars at the impound lot. It's the, right. the, the cars that don't have odors in them that have been sitting stale for a long time. So obviously the very strong new salient odor is the only – is the narcotic odor. They're not putting in their training records – uh, proofing and distracting odors. That's getting better now, but it used to be very rare. The other aspect is those unknown blank searches. You know, so I, I did a survey a while ago, and in relation to drug dog handlers, the the same question basically was: How often in training do you put out something, and how often in real life do you typically find something? And for drug dogs, both were high. They typically found things more frequently, and then they also had hides out. So I said, you might want to start documenting in your training you know, unknown blank searches and increase those by a significant number because it will show your reliability in the aspect is your dog just doesn't get out and alert all the time. Because if that's yes. all you have written is all these fines, you're not bolstering the case that the dog is reliable in the absence of the trained odor. So you do yourself a, a enormous favor by continually uh, and, and routinely at some points, random, you know, I, I try to say this routinely and randomly, but put out or set up training that you don't know the answer to. And in that setup is also blank. I'm not talking a blank area. I'm not talking out of five cars, three of them are blank. No, I'm talking whatever it is that you're searching, whether it be rooms, vehicles, etc., has nothing. And you don't know that. And you have to come out and say, there's nothing here. Because we all know that's difficult to do. You know, that's not an easy thing for handlers to do. And what we had seen in the research with Dr. Hall and and Dr. and uh, soon to be Dr. Deshant, we basically the, the difference that we saw between single and double blind was in double blind, one of the components was they stayed in the area longer right. than, versus, you know, when it was single blind. So we all, Which every- is a completely reasonable mm-hmm. conclusion, and I, I bring your study up uh, in my classes also. And on that, exactly what you just said, I said, now let's, let's just, just understand this so that everybody you know knows where we're at here. If I'm a handler and I'm told there are two fines in a search area, and I walk into that search area and I, my dog alerts two times, why would I stay in that search area? I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. You've already told me that there are two fines, and yep. I've gotten to those two fines. If you don't tell me that there's anything in there, of course I'm going to probably be in that area longer to ensure that I've done my due diligence yep. or that the dog has done his due diligence. So that is a reasonable conclusion, mm-hmm. logical. Yep, absolutely. The and you know on that record subject, we talked about drug dogs, and you brought up something that with your background. Human remains detection, and again, Dr. Cable has her background significantly in that, and I asked her the same question. Mm-hmm. How important is it for human remains dog teams to be doing records? And of course, records was important for everybody, but what we got into nowadays is there's almost going to be here before too long subset categories to HR dogs. It won't be just this huge HR category where the HR dog does everything. 
there's like now more or less HR recovery dogs, dogs that do the wilderness search and avalanche and whatever bigger, huge areas that are used to help find a uh, decedent. And then there's the more forensic human remains type dog who's more of a, a crime scene type detection. And then there's the archaeological type HR dog looking for very old or aged, whether it be grave sites or, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, former war-torn areas looking for uh, remains of soldiers. So and then another one brought up was the the water cadaver. Right. So right there you have subsets, and it goes back to your point and then back to the point of ASB and NIST is that you should be working and training to what you deploy to do the most. Yes. And within the HR community now, because HR has mostly been comprised of the volunteer task force kind of thing, and they want to be able to do as much as they can because it's volunteer. And with volunteer, they were never given an opportunity to go through schools like law enforcement or military does. So they don't get the same level of typically education-wise when it comes to deployment experience and things of that nature uh, to get them prepped when they get their dog to go out there and do that skill set. So all of a sudden, let's just say this organization or this county has their search and rescue teams, and in that search and rescue teams is X amount of live find, uh, X amount of what I would call dual live and HR, then there's the the few HR. But then right. they'll get called to go one day to go do, after a wildfire came through, look for HR, and then you know, could be two weeks later, a cold case detective calls and says, we we believe we got a confession. We need a dog team to go search here. And they don't understand crime scene preservation and things of that nature. So how important is it in the HR community, one, to do records and what should they should document? And then two, do you also kind of come to the same conclusion that the HR community should start falling into subset specialties? I'm going to answer the latter first. That is absolutely, they should fall into subset. Because it's just, as you just, everything you just said, that is so true and accurate. And we know, we know that these different subsets are very specific and they're not this generalized. And so I really do believe that that that's the way that it should go. I just did a search and rescue class up in the state of Wisconsin and everything that you just said is reality because they're civilians, they're volunteers, they don't, this is what they do as their hobby. And they're very, very passionate people about Mm -hmm. it, but they don't have access, most of them, to the amount of, the, the quality of trainers or the amount of training that we do on the law enforcement side. That's just a fact. And their record keeping, I, I they were astounded when because they weren't even familiar that there were even standards out there. Yeah. And so they were astounded that there were even standards that they should be complying with and standards that they should be following. Not to mention, and you hit a key point, they're not familiar with search and seizure. They're not familiar with Fourth Amendment other than things that they've read. And a lot of times they're going to be operating under, they're operating under the authority of law enforcement, which puts them, the Fourth Amendment applies to them because Mm -hmm. they're operating under those um, circumstances, under the authority of law enforcement in many cases. And they need to have that understanding of, I can bring my state. Yep, exactly. And, and 
that the moment in time they step foot and you know onto a constitutionally protected area we have a search that's being that that is occurring and that you know what the guidelines are back and forth so it's real important for them to to get up to speed on that and we, we've seen a lot of cadaver dog cases fall by the wayside we've seen some very good cadaver dog cases also where the handlers did a you know a stellar job testifying but these are handlers i'll give it there's a state case out of wisconsin called state versus buckeye uh, it's a 2020 case that came out and it uh, is a case that involves two uh, hrd dogs and two trailing dogs and everybody should read that case um, we have it on our website and you can find it you know anywhere but the handlers testified in that case uh during the daubert hearing and they all four of the handlers that testified talked about peer-reviewed scientific studies that they were aware of that they had been familiar with they were able to show in their training records that they did did negative areas and that uh, um, those are, that that was a significant portion of their training that they did single blind testing that they bracketed the ages of their search that they had distractor odors within their search areas all the, they could not have testified any better or the, the the court and the Daubert the lower court um, accepted them and said they are obviously qualified and their testimony can go forward as expert witness that it's based in science and they uh, based in scientific principles that the handlers followed those scientific principles and when it got to the court of appeals the court of appeals went line by line by line and acknowledged the fact that these handlers were sufficiently qualified and reliable that again that they were following the scientific procedures and that the circuit court got it right and allowed their testimony to come in and if that's so not a roadmap real yeah say if that's not a roadmap yeah. for all types of detection specifically upcoming narcotic you're crazy not to pay attention to that no agreed and that's why i say that's one of those cases that i wish every handler would read because it really highlights the education of these handlers and how they were able to get that out during during their testimony very very key very very key and and unfortunately on the civilian detector side of things you know there tends to be a little bit law enforcement were used to testifying we're used to going into court and so we have a little bit more experience now some of us still don't do it as well as others but that being said we, we at least have that experience and on the civilian sides they don't have that experience so they get up there and then we get bad case law mm -hmm. you know so in that case for everybody listening again is is it, it's wisconsin versus buckeye it's state yeah state, state versus buckeye and it is wisconsin. a um it is a wisconsin court of appeals case okay. uh from 2020 perfect I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button 
on your screen when the dog makes a find, and it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, as with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, Go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordk9.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordCanine.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at tacticaldirectionalcanine.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel. It has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So 
you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com. Or like I said, go to FordK9.com, go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, FordK9.com. So you bring up... um, Another thing that's you, it's it's growing in popularity, and there's various you know um, thoughts or opinions either way. I I, I use it quite a bit, but uh, in your state now, I think mandates it the as part of phase one of certification. But the odor recognition test, talk about that and the value, yep. or you know what what handlers can get out of it. Yeah, so I'm gonna um, I'm just gonna lay kind of a foundation and a history as to how this all came about in. 2011, the Chicago Tribune, February 2011, the Chicago Tribune did a uh, an article about drug detection dogs in the state of Illinois. And unlike most states, we have to document every time we make a traffic stop in the state of Illinois, the race of the driver, how long the stop was, whether we requested consent to search um, the vehicle or the occupants, and whether a drug dog was used whether the drug dog alerted and what it was that we found. And through uh, FOIA requests, the Tribune was able to get information from some of these Chicago metropolitan areas, including primarily from the Illinois State Police. And what they discovered was that more Hispanic drivers were getting their vehicles sniffed by narcotic contraband detection dogs, that those dogs were alerting, and that as a result of the alert, that there was nothing being found on a search on probable cause. And I was actually present when the reporter was at a training group that I was at at the time, and I didn't know who he was. And as soon as I found out, I couldn't run any faster out of there, you know, (laughs) get away. But when that article was published in February of 2011, the Illinois State Legislature took six months to pass uh, a new law in the state of Illinois, and that was the Police Dog Training Standards Act. And basically what they said is, is that all dogs in the state of Illinois that are used for purposes of drug detection had to meet the requirements by the Illinois Law Enforcement Standards and Training Board, which is our post, our equivalent to the post for you know most of your listeners. And they kind of flicked the booger onto Iletsby and said, you guys come up with the standards. So they had met with a bunch of um, experts in the field, including Terry Fleck, and they adopted the swig dog standard. But when they did that, they exempted the major law enforcement players throughout the state, that being the Chicago Police Department, the Cook County Sheriff's Police, who uh, certified to the NAPWADA standard, the Springfield, Sangamon County area, which is our state capital, and the Illinois State Police were exempted from following the standards. Well, everybody else in the state had to follow the standard. Well, over the years, what was happening was is these private vendors who were in the state of Illinois, none of them, or many of them, I don't want to say none, many of them didn't have a real good understanding of the swig dog standard. And as I'm sure you're aware, it was a 90% mm-hmm. uh, success rate. And so what they would do many of these vendors who were charging substantial amount of money 
to certify dog teams, if they liked you and let's say you weren't meeting that 90% standard, what they would do is they would just add search areas onto <laughs> mm-hmm. your, um, uh, to your certification until you met the 90% success rate. And if they didn't like you, they would just fail you. And then you had to pay another $250 in order to come out and certify. So um, at the time, I was the chair for the Illinois Law Enforcement Canine Association uh, Legal Committee. And we went down to Springfield and met with uh, the board and explained these discrepancies. And so they restarted the the program in an effort to, to come up with a new standard. And they came up with the odor recognition test. So I was on that working group that developed that. So basically what we do in Illinois is you have 20 tubes that are in a defined area. They are, I think they're five, the tubes are five feet apart and they're set up in two rows, 10 in each row. And so you have four odors. So you have four hot tubes out of the 20. There are four blank tubes. So now you're up to eight. And the remaining 12 tubes have distractor odors that are present. And those distractor odors are, are listed out what distractor odors are acceptable for the evaluator to use in those uh, in those tubes. And it's pretty much a straight odor recognition test from there. You go through, you have 15 minutes, you have to call the four hot tubes. It's a 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, you either pass or fail. And really, I think... When you break things down to its its most basic level on the detector side, that's as simple of a test as you can get. Absolutely. That's what I bring up a lot of times is, but I tell you what, it's the simplest of tests and the baseline to kind of go with, but it is right. the most feared out of like all of the testing that's out there, which I find kind of funny in the sense that people <laughs> are so scared of a simple dog sniff to an item that says yes or no. That's exactly correct. So obviously it is catching on and is becoming much more frequently used within the industry. Many other detection dog uh, disciplines utilize an ORT for them for all of their baseline um, evaluations. Mm -hmm. So it only helps in, in many cases, or it adds to a handler's, you know, the information they present forward by conducting those ORTs. Now, you guys, is it is it once a year or twice a year? How often do you guys do your ORT? So, um, handlers are required when they come out of a, a training school on initial, they have to do that. And as part of the initial training, you have to meet 160 hours in your initial training for narcotic detection, and that has to be signed off by the trainer and submitted to the state. And then once you've done that, you have to take an online canine legal update course, mm-hmm. uh, which I wrote for the state of Illinois. And then once you're done with that, then you can move on and you can do that odor recognition test. And then after that, it is to be requalified it's once a year. Okay. No, that's good because, you know, what, uh, it was kind of unique in the sense. So when it was probably a little over, gosh, we're getting close to two years now. Um, we were showing, uh, a Southern, a large Southern California agency, these types of evaluations, the order recognition test specifically. And 
initially not sure of kind of like typical response. So why do we need to do this? What's the importance of it? Blah, blah, blah. Now it is standard. They run it frequently. And I say frequently, basically they train or they put it in their training logs at least quarterly because they have set up the systems where the trainers, because, you know, a lot of times training that most canine handlers do is just to go down the odor list to train on. Like right. I, I put out this, I put out that. What many have realized is, oh, I can actually accomplish that very easy with the ORT and yeah. then really focus my skill set on what I do every day, what, what my actual yes. operational is. So uh, it allows me to do a training you know, set up where maybe there's nothing present. Maybe there's the one thing present. Maybe there's a huge amount of the one substance present. Maybe there's two things. I didn't, I found the one, but did I find the second one? You know, you can actually do versus what we would call more of the canned training, which is I showed up, we have the parking lot of six cars. Out of the six cars, there's four odors. There's one, there's, you know, four separate odors out. Oh, look, we did, you know, cocaine, meth, heroin, MDMA, whatever. And, uh, look, I did my, I did my training and of course it was, the training was really geared towards hitting the odor checklist versus yep. matching anything that we do typically other than it was a car that it was on and <laughs> we do a lot of car stops, but anything else about the vehicle does not match what the uh, canine teams typically face in reality. So I, I'm, I, it's really cool to hear, you know, I didn't know that you were actually part of, you know, creating those standards. And I think, I'm not going to name the organization, but there is a large national organization I've heard is considering adding it for the drug dogs. Have you heard something along those lines as well? I, I did hear that there was some consideration going on yeah. uh, about that. And I think that's a good thing. And then you brought up a, another very important point from that Southern California agency that does it four times a year. And that's a one thing I think a lot of people miss in their maintenance training program and that is proficiency assessment mm -hmm. and that's kind of what that agency is doing by doing that four times a year is you're you're you really are running a proficiency assessment and that should be in every component uh, i should say discipline in your maintenance training program so in between certifications we are still doing an ongoing testing process of the dog and the team to ensure that the dog is at least meeting the minimum uh, testing requirements. And that's a big component. And, and Terry Fleck had done surveys and polled handlers years ago about maintenance training and that kind of stuff. And every time we go out and teach now, I have created... Uh, a poll survey to try to replicate many of those things. Terry Fleck found that 99% of canine handlers at least meet a 16 hour mm -hmm. uh, a per month maintenance training regimen out of the handlers we've done. I think we're, cause I just started doing it. I think we're up in the 300 uh, range, 400 range. And we're at about a 90% of handlers that are at least meeting that. But one of the questions I ask on the, the survey is whether or not the team participates in proficiency assessment. And we are very, very, very low numbers. Most handlers don't even know what a proficiency assessment is. And mm -hmm. that's a, that's a sad, that's a sad thing for me to see because that just shows that 
you know, handlers aren't doing their ORTs. They're not doing, you know, regular testing throughout the year to ensure that their dogs are are at least meeting their minimum standards. And you and I both know when you read a, if you, when you get a handler's training uh, report, you will always know where certification is because the month prior to the certification, the handler has, or a month or two prior to, you have the, an, a huge increase in training hours because they're preparing for the test. Correct. And that shouldn't be. Mm-mm. At any point, you should be able to pull your dog out of the back of your car and run the test and the dog and the team have no difficulties in completing it. Absolutely. Every device we use, and I bring this up frequently, whether it be the intoxilizer or the laser mm-hmm. or the ones that still have radar, those machines have to test every single day to make yes. sure that they're working properly. And it's a sensor. <laughs> exactly. Our dog is no different. It's a sensor. So exactly we right. to, to fear that at any point in time we can't pass the minimum standard means you shouldn't be out there doing it. And and I try to call out as many handlers on that. If you aren't doing, if if you can't pass your, your cert standard at any given time, you shouldn't be out there doing this. Your training should be focused on what we talked about earlier, what your operational aspects are and to push yourself to see, you know, the strengths and or weaknesses and then to address and apply corrective action to weaknesses that you find, but understanding that there is no perfection, uh, both handler and dog. So you, you know, don't fear documenting these things. You know, I, I came from the era of canine initially, which was throw that four inch binder down the, on the desk that was basically full of nothing because the mentality was don't write very much. <laughs> basically feed everybody, treat everybody like a mushroom, feed them shit and keep them in the dark, you know? Yep. So you didn't write anything down or you, it was very, you know, plus or minus. That's all you had in there. Your dog found it or didn't find it or it wasn't there or whatever it was. It was super basic. And now... It's important to document a lot of things. You know, I always make sure handlers document everything in the search area, you know. So if there's 25 cars in the search area, put down there was 25 cars, you know, because a lot of times they write down where the fine was at and what the amount was and set times and all that kind of stuff. But they weren't writing how many things they searched, which is very important. The, you know, it, it goes on and on, but the important... Well, you bring up a really, really important point there, if I, if I can right just ahead. underscore it real quick, is that there's a case out of Maine, and I was up teaching in Maine, I actually um, had the hammer in two of my classes, and so I got to learn um, a little bit of the background that wasn't in the case record. The handler wound up doing a person sniff. First, they did a vehicle sniff. The dog alerted on the seat of the vehicle in which the suspect was sitting, and then they did an actual sniff of the the person and the dog in the rear end of the person went to a final a train final uh, response, and they got a warrant based off of that. And what the defense tried to argue was that the dog was not alerting to the odor of narcotic, but was l- alerting to the odor of feces. <laughs> and so this is how detailed this handler was. And this is why I want to underscore what you just said about documenting things in your training area, because the handler routinely during her article searches would document the fact that there was goose, coyote, fox feces, things like that within the search area. 
and that the dog had never had any interest and or alerted on those. And the court accepted that. So just those minor details that a handler would not think would be important to put into their training records saved this handler and saved the case. And they were able to show that, in fact, this dog does not alert to feces because feces were in present. And granted, it wasn't a narcotic search, but just taking it out of there into the article search that this handler thought to put that into their report that wound up saving them on a narcotic side. Yeah, absolutely. No, 100%. And, and, you know, I'll, because I know I need to wrap it up with you, I have two last questions that are very common and reverberate through the echo chamber of social media all the time, especially on certain or the various different uh, law enforcement discussion groups. So I'll go with the first one. Indication. There's always the uh, debates about <laughs> the alert. Does, should the dog sit or not sit? I'll let you go ahead and cover that. You know, I know we're on agreement, but I'll let you hit it. You know, with the, I would say, growing in popularity of the pointing breeds in the detection community, people are starting to realize, hey, this natural indication is pretty dang strong and I like it. But that indication is that focused point, let's say, which is very different than what they are used to uh, with the typical dog must sit. If the dog doesn't sit, you must acquit kind of thing. Right. But uh, (laughs) the – so go ahead and discuss, you know, I guess because it comes up so often is, well, if my dog doesn't sit, uh, it's no good. Or um, the importance of what a clear defined indication is. Yes. So that's a great, and we see that all the time, and that's it provokes a huge discussion during our training seminars. And again, I would implore the handlers to understand the definitions of the terms that they are using. The dog, in almost every legal setting, only needs to go to an alert. And a, a, a positive alert is the culmination of changes of behavior that a handler sees in their dog when their dog gets into odor. And that is very, very dog specific. So what my dog does, your dog may not do. And the way that I can show that is through my training records and documenting in my training records that I see this behavior in my dog. As an example, my first dog that I worked when he would get into odor, Every time he would come into odor, he would clear his nose. So we'd go open mouth, open mouth, closed mouth, sniff, 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 clear nose. I knew he was in odor. And a handler who worked close by me knew that his dog was always on a track because the moment in time that the dog was on the track, his hind paws would cant in towards the track. And when he'd come off the track, the paws would go back to normal. Those are very very specific behaviors in that particular dog. The dog, according to almost every court in this country, has to alert. They do not have to go to a trained final response, meaning the sit or the um, aggressive pawing or what have you. The undergirding for that is a case out of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals called United States versus Prada. And all of the cases, for the most part, across the country that have looked at this and say, said repeatedly, a dog does not need to go to a trained final response. The dog has to alert. Um, they all pretty much 
99% rule, they cite United States versus Prada as their. And in that particular case, a, a dog was running a free air sniff on a, uh, a vehicle, and the dog came, came to the open driver's window of the vehicle and jumped through it. And the handler said that his dog doesn't just jump up on things, and that the mere fact that he did that was a change in behavior. The only time he's ever seen that in training was when there was odor present, and the court said that's absolutely acceptable. And there's a whole host of cases that come after that that says the same thing. Dogs don't have to come to a trained final response. They just simply have to alert. But in order for that, in order for a handler to get up on the stand and say, I observed X, Y, and Z, and because I saw X, Y, and Z, I called that an alert, they have to be able to point back in their training records to show that in training, their dog did X, Y, and Z. Yes. And what I've also seen too, and tell me if this is wrong, but basically these alerts or the changes of behaviors can't be so unique that nobody around even knows it happened. It can't be Absolutely. so... Yeah, it has to be, lack of a better term, or like I know Andy Wyman uses this term quite a, quite a bit, which is good, demonstrative enough that basically your layman, i.e. judge or jury, could also see it and go, yeah, something happened there. Right. And coupled with your records and everything else you've documented that validates what you stated in this case and your report through your training records and everything else that that is consistent, reliable, and you should be able to recite it. You know, we just did this to a handler the other day. It was a bomb dog handler and there's been various struggles, you know, uh, as the, as you know, handler and dog and so forth. And the guest trainer I had asked the handler, what is your dog's, you know, basically change the behavior. What's your dog's indication behavior? What is that? And of course, he he struggled to you know describe it, and that right there was the problem. You know that was that right yes. there clearly showed uh, the confusion that exists and why he was not as accurate and knowing the difference between interest and when his dog yes. was on odor. And that happens a lot to to people because you know behaviors regarding things that are novel or interesting to the dog can look similar. But like you said, there are distinct differences when there's a trained odor stimulus present and what the dog does to that because, of course, the reinforcement schedule behind it. You and I both know there are many, many reasons why a dog might not go into a trained oh, final response. For sure. One of the cases is out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers uh, Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. The handler testified that his dog did not like water and didn't like to sit in water specifically. And on the evening of his stop, it had just rained. And so he did a free air sniff on this vehicle that was curbed. And the dog comes up along the side of the car, has this change of behavior, kind of is looking around and won't sit because there's a puddle of water there. Mm-hmm. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said, again, we the dog does not need to go to this train final response. There's obvious reasons why they wouldn't. And um, the change in behavior that the handler was able to recite and show through training records is perfectly acceptable to for the sole basis of creating probable cause to search that vehicle. So handlers have to to be aware of that um, while they're documenting in their training reports and 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 like you said, being able to recite those. Yep. And the what would you say to as advice for agencies? 
who state that, or I would say more or less force the issue, like, well, the dog must sit. We, we, we have to have a sit. What, obviously, besides the pitfalls we just brought up of, there's many cases where the dog can't, but um, I, I've heard it, and I'm pretty sure you have too, many handlers go, well, our trainer or our program states that we have to train to sit. What would you? What additional advice would you give them? Well, it would just be that I think that's very short-sighted, and it comes back to we have agency administrators and we have supervisors and we have trainers that are not educated on the relevant case law, and so it's real incumbent upon all of those people, the administrators, the supervisors, and the trainers to familiarize themselves with the relevant case law and to stay up with industry standards. And unfortunately, we see a lot of that lacking in uh, in our supervision and in our trainers, unfortunately. Yeah. No, it, it, it's something that, like, obviously we both see quite a bit. I, mean, I had a conversation just yesterday with an agency that got a pointer for the first time. And of course this guy's struggling because pointers want a point. And exactly. he, he wants, and of course he's like, well, I have to make it sit. And I'm like, why do you have to make it sit? Well, it's because what's we, that's what we, we train to. That's what our standard is. And I'm like, just so you know, I want you to understand by forcing yourself into that position, you're painting yourself into a box. I said, you, uh, agreed. You, you, you have a, dog in this case, that has a very natural indication behavior to a stimulus. You don't have any command that makes that happen other than with consistent reinforcement, your stimulus being present that would instigate that type of indication behavior. And, you know, he understood and things like that, but, and I know it's just common and it's common. It's certain is to me, I've seen it more common in certain regions of the United States. It depends on, you know, as anything out here in the detection world, depends on where you're at as to what they follow, <laughs> what they do, uh, both good and bad. So I think they try to overcomplicate yes. things. And if you keep the, keep the, the understanding of this very simple, and that is, does the dog recognize the odor? Does the dog communicate that to the handler? Mm-hmm. Can the handler read that behavior? That's as simple as you can break it down to is the way that, you know, in my brain, yeah, the dog recognized the odor, the dog communicated it to the handler, the handler was able to read that and call that the dog was an odor. And I lied a second ago and I said I had two because when we talked, I thought of a third question real quick. It should be pretty easy to, to answer. When you bring up the terms and definitions aspect, one of the things that we, we deal with all the time is the definition. Uh, what is alert? What is final alert? What is false alert? I'll let you do kind of – I've started using the more technical term just because of obviously the stuff that we write within ASB and NIST and things like that, using the word indication, just because that is clinically what's defined, you know, as what the, a dog does. But obviously, like I tell a lot of handlers, I said, it, there's a lot of industry jargon that we use. As long as you can articulate the industry jargon and know that it also means this in the technical aspect will help you when maybe answering questions from posed on the legal side of things, but I'll let you kind of take it from there. Yeah, no, I agree 100% with you. The courts typically are going to use the term alert. So I like the alerting term because that's when you say that my dog positively alerted to the presence of narcotic contraband odor, the judge can understand that. And then of course, like you said, be aware of 
the terms and definitions as set forth by ASB and, and uh, NITS, and that will go a long way. So the alert, the positive alert, we look at that's the, the culmination and changes of behavior that you see in your dog when the dog gets to gets into odor. The final response or the final alert or the trained final response is what the dog has been trained to do once they get to the source odor, whether it be sit and stare, the aggressive, you know, dig and stare. Unfortunately, we still are seeing across the country that we have aggressive, <laughs> aggressive yeah. trained dogs out there. And I think most of the industry is coming away from that, which is a good thing. But that would be your trained final uh, response when the dog uh, does its sit and stare or it's uh, um, digging and staring. And that the false alert is when the dog creates a, an alert or a positive alert or trained final response when there is no odor present for them to alert to. So those are kind of the definitions or terms that we try to get out, that that's what the, the, the false is. And I also add in there a miss, and the miss yeah. really being that the dog missed the odor. And I think there's a real fine line to this, or there's, there's a reason why we need to understand that, because again, the, court, the Supreme Court of the United States addressed those issues in Florida versus Harris. Mm -hmm. And they talked about why they really don't care whether a dog misses or not misses, because if a dog misses the odor, there's not going to be a constitutional search that follows Correct. that. Yep. But if a dog falses, then I think the term that the Supreme Court used was a false positive, then there's going to be a constitutional search. So they're obviously more inclined to look at those type of error rates. Yeah. No, and, and here's some terms I've taken from the European side of things. Uh, they'll use positive indication, positive alert, meaning the dog correctly indicated to a source of odor material. Negative response, meaning no odor indicated and no response. And then they have negative indication, negative slash alert, meaning the dog had an indication, but no odor or substance was present. So... Unique way of doing it. I, I definitely understand it. Uh, Dr. Cable kind of had some other ones that mirrored what you said too. But it was just interesting. You know, I, I kind of it's it's it also kind of falls into how each one of our brains interprets what we hear. You know, so you hear a positive right. indication, positive alert, pretty easy. Everybody gets that one. Negative response was slightly different because you had to think about it for a second. But yeah, that makes sense mm -hmm. because the dog there was nothing there, so there was negative. There was no response, and then negative indication, negative alert, meaning the dog did give an indication slash alert. You know, and it yielded with no substance or odor found. And now the good thing about that one is there's many different things that may have caused that that can't be determined, such as what the courts bring up is, you know, the real world environment. You know, we all understand that there can be odor present without a substance still there is the, the odor still, you know, uh, you know, in that area hasn't dissipated yet. So the dog may obviously give you an indication or the alert and uh, you haven't, there's nothing to find um, the whole popcorn lingering odor theory. Yep. So yep. the, uh, and that's something that, that, that handlers really have to understand so that they can communicate that effectively to the judge or jury so that they can understand why the, would their dog alert and it, let's say a dog uh, has a positive alert on the exterior of a vehicle, 
officers search that vehicle. They find nothing. And under their state constitutional interpretation, under their state uh, courts, pursuant to that, they can search the occupant of, of a vehicle. Well, that is what we can show. Let's say then they search the occupant of the vehicle and they find dope. That is a prime example of when a handler should be able to explain what lingering odor is. Uh-huh. The pop, you know, using the popcorn analogy because, you know, it, and it's just how handlers are able to articulate that when they're on the stand. Oh yeah, no, and that's a big, huge gap, obviously, in our industry is handler education and how to be prepared for the legal aspects, which is obviously what you do, which is a great, huge asset and resource for for handlers. But we, uh, you know, like you bring up a lot of agencies go to vendors, I'm one, and the job of those educational institutes should be to do handler preparation for your legal defense or your legal stance. And (laughs) there's so so much information, there's so much emphasis on just working the dog, they're not doing what is needed. So I, I try to set up constantly... I make them do question and answers. And of course, I always start off with what you just said earlier in, the, in this podcast, which was, are you the subject matter expert of your dog? And they'll say yes. Right. And then I just walk them down. I just and I start annihilating them with questions. And then they're like, oh, I said, wait a second. You're the subject matter expert of your dog. How can you not answer this question? <laughs> so I, I, I put them to, to go through that pressure and that feeling. But, uh, you know, I, I'm glad. Uh, One of the things that I see that is, and I understand why some of the vendors would not be very successful at this and and that's because they're they have dogs coming in or handlers coming in and they're training them from many different states or locations throughout the united states and one thing that i do that's uniquely different it's uniquely different than terry fleck and i used to get into arguments with him about it Mm -hmm. how not arguments well you know debate friendly debates as you know uh, with terry and some of the others that actually go out and do the legal updates uh, throughout the United States is, is that a lot of these guys, what they do is they get a list of what they think are the important canine case law. They can that program and they go throughout the United States and teach that. And I think that does a lot of disservice because the way that I do it is very jurisdictional and it puts a lot of uh-huh. pressure on me because I sit in Chicago, Illinois. Illinois sits in the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. So the only federal law that's applicable to me here in Illinois is what the Supreme Court of the United States says and the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Mm-hmm. That's the only binding precedential law that, that I have to follow in Illinois. Out in California, they have to follow the Ninth Circuit. Mm-hmm. They could care less what the Seventh Circuit says. Mm-hmm. So wherever I go and teach, I teach the federal level Supreme Court. I teach their specific court of appeals cases, and then I take their state cases and I break them down and I bring them just their state cases. Yeah. If I'm teaching in Illinois, Illinois doesn't care what the uh, California state court says. And or no, it doesn't care what a Florida state court mm-hmm. says. They only care what, what the Illinois court says. So that is what I do, which is a little bit unique to uh, the industry or, or within the industry. And I can understand why some vendors wouldn't want to do that because they have yeah these dogs coming in from all over but there are some basic case law that's pretty standardized throughout the United States that we can look at oh yeah but 
you know, it can definitely be um, get a little complicated. And, and I'm definitely in one of those unique locations because I'm in Nevada. I deal with a lot <laughs> of California, you know, some Washington, a little bit of Oregon. Then I got Utah. And oh, yeah. So, two different circuits, two different. Yeah. So it, it, it's, uh, it's pretty unique. But um, so on to the last question I had, which is the most common echo chamber question on every list is – Oh my God, guys, what do I do? My state just legalized marijuana or medical marijuana. My district attorney or my state attorney says, we aren't using your dogs anymore. Guys, what do I do? Is my dog worthless? You know, I'll let you uh, address that one here on the podcast. Yeah, um, that is the most common question. And it's timely uh, because uh, New York State just passed their recreational use marijuana. So I'm getting a lot of questions coming in from there. The fact is, is that most of the state courts have allowed their marijuana dogs to continue working on the street without any issues. Um, the oh, There's only really two states so far that have kind of put a stop to it. And there's even some conflicting case law there. But um, the state of Colorado, in two cases, People versus McKnight, People versus Gadbury, the Supreme Court of Colorado, both of those, neither of those cases, I should say, had anything to do with marijuana. They were methamphetamine cases, but the dog was trained in marijuana, and the Supreme Court of the state of Colorado threw them out, saying basically that the dog could potentially have alerted to a substance that was no longer contraband. It was non-contraband items. Oregon, there's two cases at the uh uh, court of Appeals in Oregon. One says that the officer had probable cause to to believe that the marijuana was present unlawfully in the case, and the other uh, there's kind of a split. Um, very very fact specific cases. The other case said that the officer did not have probable cause to believe that the um, defendant in the case had contraband item, that being marijuana. All the other, even California have upheld it. Illinois has upheld it. So I don't think, I think people have this knee-jerk reaction that, that you know, the entire system is going to fall apart simply because uh, the state legalized a certain amount of marijuana. Mm-hmm. And we're just not seeing that in the court levels. And even the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in a recent case that was a... Uh, New Mexico, I think it initiated in New Mexico, if I'm not mistaken, upheld upheld a marijuana uh, alerting uh, case, a dog that was trained in marijuana and uh, upheld upheld that case. So this whole knee-jerk reaction, I think um, people need to just slow down. And you're going to have to take a wait-and-see real approach to how your courts ultimately mm-hmm. determine. Because the fact of the matter is is that not all marijuana possession is legal. Mm-hmm. And there, it, it is still a contraband at certain amounts in those states. And um, I think most of the courts recognize that. I know the, court of Cal- the, the California courts have recognized that. And that's probably one of your... Yeah, bigger and most liberal mm-hmm. um, court states, and so for them to have upheld upheld that is pretty good. I think for the industry, I'd actually be a little bit more concerned 
to be quite honest with you on the uh the hemp yes then i then i was i'm more concerned about the hemp than i am about marijuana to be quite honest with you mm-hmm. and i know that there are current ongoing studies with the hemp and so i look forward to those yeah the results to, that's and for those <laughs> who don't know what, what we're referring to is the amount of thc that might be present within the uh, hemp items which would ultimately elect a dog alert and and i can tell you just from what I've got to be exposed to at uh, Texas Tech's olfaction laboratory. It can come down to the dog, you know, because yeah. you, you have the dogs who are, who have those abilities to detect the parts per trillion. And then you have the very next dog in the same unit that is the parts per million dog. So it, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, like you said, I fully agree. It's going to be, it's going to be a battle fought in the courts. And then once the courts, set guidance than the agencies. So right now it's going to be a little bit of the wild west as far as it'll be, it'll work yep. over here, not over there. And, and it depends really on your, on the actual statute that was um, enacted within your state. Illinois yeah. is a unique in a unique position because we just legalized January 1, 2020. But leading up to that, there was a canine trainer from the central part of Illinois who made a comment to the media that, if they pass the recreational marijuana law that we would have to euthanize all 403 marijuana dogs in the state. And the representative who uh, sponsored the Illinois recreational use is a huge dog lover from the Chicago area. So um, some canine handlers knocked on her door and showed her what this canine trainer had said in the media and sponsored an additional bill in the legislature that in order to possess marijuana or transport it in a vehicle, it had to be in an it has to be in an odor proof, tamper proof, child proof container. Mm-hmm. And the sole intent behind that was to ensure that marijuana dogs can continue to work on the street in the state. So it really depends on the actual verbiage in your statute, you know, in their statute for whatever respective state we're discussing. Yeah. And and then I also let them know, obviously, get with your local state attorney because yep. what I always see is no matter how good the fight is on our end, if your state attorney isn't going to prosecute anything that you do, you're kind of dead in the water at that point until somebody, I could not agree anymore. Yeah. yeah. Because you're absolutely right. They, you know, they, that they decide they're not going to prosecute any cases where your dog worked. Yep. You were kind of stuck And that ha- in, in Florida where I originated from, there was a lot of that going on that they were being advised by state attorneys like, Nope, sorry, we're not, if your dog was trained on marijuana, we won't take any cases from your dog. Now, and it, and it takes, honestly, those are just your attorneys down there. The state attorney themselves, Themselves, I you know I think or should in in time maybe will give guidance to those local state attorneys to say hey look you know we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater here you know here's you know this needs to be reviewed in a case by case manner uh, because of course the knee jerk reaction on my end for people coming out to me was can we untrain our dogs off of marijuana. And I, I, you can untrain an indication or a behavior, but the the cognitive memory of the dog to that odor stimulus is always going to be present. And the part that you guys can't control is those searches that are you know from the street or deployments. You yes, there could be cocaine there, but what could also be there? Well, back to the same point that they're making is that marijuana. So. You know, no matter what level of reinforcement you're giving, the dog is still getting that, 
And that's an uncontrolled right. situation. And then I call them out on, you guys can't even keep up with normal training. You think you're going to do what's required for continuous and rigorous aspects to prove that your dog is no longer indicating to the odor of, of cannabis? So you know, that I, usually I am, nips in the bud there. I am of the uh, one of the probably few that I think really – I agree that we can, their extinction training can Mm -hmm. happen and it can be successful, but under your point and your point is well taken, it takes a lot of time and work and it's dog specific, whether or not that that could even be successful, but you you don't, we don't even have handlers that can, that are even getting that there's 16 hours of, of maintenance training. And so how do you think that that's going to go? But I do take this this position on that and that is we got to remember that the dog is the alert by the dog is a probable cause standard yes and if we keep that into perspective probable cause in most jurisdictions across the united states is like getting the football to the 49 yard line it's not a preponderance of the evidence which a lot of officers think it's not more likely than not there are a host of cases throughout the united states that say that probable cause is less than a preponderance of the evidence so if we equate that to getting the football to the 49 yard line so if we understand that the standard is getting the dog to the 49 or getting the ball to the 49 yard line we understand that dogs are do have an error rate naturally the question becomes this and i don't have the answer to this cameron but can you get, can you extinguish the behavior of a marijuana trained imprinted dog enough that it would stay within the probable, the probable cause standard? And that I think becomes the legal, legally mm-hmm. relevant question. Yeah. And, and then, and like I said, that goes to the specific dog, you yeah, know, I agree. And that's the, you know, we always want to put all these dogs into one category and, I can tell you from the amounts of research I've got to do with, again, the canine cognitive abilities, just seeing the olfaction abilities of dogs, they're just like us. I'm not a basketball player. I am not Michael Jordan. I'm not Tiger. There are people who are very skilled. They just come with it. They have natural abilities and they can work and do amazing things. Dogs are very similar. Some dogs, even with the same breed, certain ones excel highly at certain aspects where the other ones just don't. So you right. can't say that all Belgian Malinois or German Shepherds are this or all labs are that. Or can we group things? Sure, there's a, there's a grouping aspect where you have data points all over the map and there's a grouping here. But the what we have to understand is, like you just said, Probable cause means there's a probability. It's not certainty cause. And right. so many handlers try to and, to, and to include the state attorneys, try to create this certainty aspect of the K-19. Exactly. And that's not and the your case. And point, your point earlier was very, very well taken, and ha- handlers have to understand this. You can be in the same state with that law, and one state's attorney or district attorney in one location says, we're going to make the argument. And another one that says, we clearly are not going to make the argument. We believe that if your dog's imprinted on marijuana, we're not going to use it as a basis for probable cause. So 
it is really, really at that point becomes very specific to your prosecuting attorney's office and their viewpoint on that. On oh, oh yeah, I, I have that exact issue here in Nevada. So Nevada Highway Patrol is basically, when it comes to canines, two camps. You have your Reno camp, which the dog teams up in Reno, then you have your Las Vegas camp. And the Reno teams work marijuana, do marijuana all the time. They're close to the Emerald Triangle, the whole nine yards. You've got down here in Vegas, the state attorneys do not give a rat's ass about marijuana. They, If the dog's trained on marijuana, they won't even touch you. So right. they, they promoted, they created a new canine director for the state, and he's from the Reno area. So he scratches his head and like, how are you guys not running marijuana? You know, because it's, yeah. it's a big thing for them. And I try to explain to him, I'm like, look, it's it's not that they don't want to, but they have no cooperating. Well, then you need to tell the state attorneys they should prosecute it. Well, that doesn't work that way. <laughs> so, right. so yeah, exactly. your, your, your point is 100% accurate. Even within the same state, you're going to get varying you know, le- levels of, of what's accepted or who takes a dog trained on what, specifically with marijuana, as its reliability and usage uh, when it's you know, deployed out there. So... Well, I want I've I've taken a ton of your time. Thank you so much for doing this before you head off to work today. How do people get a hold of you? How do they reach you and let people know some of the things that you offer besides just the Sheepdog Guardian and the Canine Legal Update? Yeah, um well, first of all, it was absolutely my honor and pleasure. If people are looking, uh, we run we basically took Terry Flex Canine Legal Updates over, so we run our law library. Uh, canine specific at www.sheepdogguardian.com. We also teach canine legal seminars throughout the United States, and um, we do uh, we do assist in defending uh, dogs at the federal and state level, and we do policy consulting uh, for agencies that are looking to uh, get their policies in line with industry standards and within the laws for their state. So uh, you can find us at, at that website. And I think the membership is $50 per year. Actually, I know the membership is $50 per year. And with that, we do a monthly newsletter that comes out with all the latest and greatest cases that come out have come out throughout the, the prior month. And um, Members, uh, I will answer their questions uh, usually within 24 hours if they email me. So we're pretty busy. On top of the fact that I'm a full-time law enforcement canine handler. So yeah, oh yeah, no. And I, I asked this of uh, various guests because I know there are certain subject matters that are popular for visual learning. Would you is this is this an open idea? To, would you be able to or willing to do a webinar with me on our Talking Sense platform where? Uh, uh- just online and and we'll pick a subject matter that you that you feel is important and we can use as a webinar. Yeah, I would uh, I would love to do that. Awesome. Perfect. Well, Mike, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and to share the knowledge. I'm sure this won't be the last time. We will definitely do some more updates and discussions. I hope all the listeners get some good information and to, you know, better yourselves when it comes to a good legal defense of what you do and how you do it and to be better prepared as a canine handler so until the next episode thank you so much for listening to canines talking sense where it's okay to be nosy